Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program, and also my website, clubchimera.com. I'm pleased to announce the start of the Vagabond Warriors Workshops. Those of you who have been following my social media will see that these three-hour intensive sessions are booked in for the 28th of July and the 25th of August of this year. More details to follow at the end of the show. This episode is part two of The Way of the Rabbit. I'll be making a few references back to the last episode, so it's probably best if you listen to that first before diving into this one. We will be looking further into the combative value and history of avoiding physical conflict. I hope you enjoy the show. The great war strategist Sun Tzu's seminal work, The Art of War, is a common reference point both in martial arts circles and in the macho posturing of business motivation. Along with Musashi Miyamoto's The Book of Five Rings, Sun Tzu's writings appear to lend a type of classical scholarly credence and justification to those who pursue conflict. However, the strategies of Sun Tzu's treaties is largely concerned with winning without actually fighting. When one considers that this work was retained as the lead text of the seven classics of Chinese literature for 1500 years and to this day is considered to be the overall most influential East Asian work on military strategy, it's easy to see why the respected Japanese samurai Bokuden Kisukahara, who we discussed in the previous episode, was not met with scorn when he preached the art of winning with no hands. With Sun Tzu's pragmatic work so entrenched in the minds of generations of military leaders during the heights of China's success as an empire, one can see why it was more than a religion or an inserted morality that would influence martial artists to teach the value of physical fighting only as a last resort. Fighting is costly, especially when good results can be achieved without physically engaging with someone. With its heavy reliance on cunning and trickery, there is much of the way of the rabbit in Sun Tzu's treaties. The art of war might be considered at least as much as wisdom on the alternatives to violence as it is on waging battles. Not only does the author preach the value of evasion against stronger foes, but in his third chapter, which is concerning strategic attack, he says, For to win 100 victories in 100 battles is not the acme of skill. To subdue the enemy without fighting is the acme of skill. In 1998, martial arts and self-protection teacher Jeff Thompson published his book, The Art of Fighting Without Fighting. Like a modern-day Bokuden Tsukihara, Jeff was already showing strong signs that he had outgrown the limitations of physical self-defence. His previous books, which began with his famous autobiography, Watch My Back, had gone through pressure testing, preemptive striking, punching, close-range striking, kicking, stand-up grappling, a multiple-part series on ground fighting and submissions, and even weight training for the martial artist. For years, he had administered the bitter-tasting pill of understanding the realities of violence. This had included offering a fair critique of the shortcomings of most martial arts training of his day, as well as a debunking of many myths in civilised society regarding the nature of self-defence. He had articulated and stressed the importance of preemptive striking and pressure testing as defining characteristics of effective self-defence. Now with this book, which today can easily be lost amid the large output of other books he produced in the 1990s that focused on single self-protection topics, Jeff concerned himself entirely with methods for avoiding physical fighting. If one looks critically and honestly at self-protection, such a progression in needing to address this area should be of no surprise. 
In his introduction to the book, Jeff explains why he arrived at this point in his life. He explains that he was once of a mindset where winning violent confrontations with violence was his standard belief in dealing with those who presented a physical threat to him. What had begun as self-therapy to face his own fears of physical confrontations and to test his martial arts training had evolved into a nine-year lifestyle of defending a reputation as a formidable nightclub bouncer working some of the most dangerous doors in the UK. For life-changing reasons outlined and explored in his other work, Jeff left this behind and came to the realisation that the highest victory in a self-defence situation is to avoid getting physical. Jeff believes that a lot of insecurity has pushed many a martial arts fighter to get into unnecessary brawls because they felt they had something to prove. It is this belief that has fuelled him and many other peaceful warriors to train hard in an area that tests fighting competence to build the inner resolve not to give that certain person a dig, even if they needed one. Jeff's chapters on avoidance and escape begins with simple situation awareness education. Quite simply, exercise common sense and insight to avoid places with bad reputations. Mo Teague neatly described to me the changing factors that raise or lower situational risk as people, places, times and hazards. Reading behaviours in certain people are important skills as the Brer Rabbit tales often illustrated. We can plan ahead and adapt accordingly if we can see that someone is going to turn violent. Eight years after Jeff's book was published, world boxing champion Ricky Hatton was mugged in China. At the time in his fight career, Hatton was at his prime. He had won multiple versions of the World Light Welterweight title, and that same year he won the world title in the Welterweight division. Yet Hatton, when confronted by a gang of muggers whilst out drinking with friends, had little trouble in handing over a £4,000 Rolex watch. It would have been a fair bet that Hatton would have made short work of any of the muggers in a square go, but in this situation he made the sensible decision in parting with his expensive possession. I often use the anecdote to illustrate the point that if it was good enough for a world boxing champion to decide his life was more important than his ego or a lifeless object, then it should be good enough for the rest of us. Bringing matters closer to home, I often use my daughter as a measure for how self-defence should apply to me. When I teach concepts, strategies or tactics, I think of what I would want her to do. She once asked me the question, what I would do if someone threatened me with a weapon and demanded money from me. I replied that I would hand it over, or, if I could, negotiate or escape. She looked a little crestfallen. Her martial arts teaching father, her defender and teacher, did not provide an exciting hypothetical story that compared with what our society has come to expect of its heroes. I then described to her another hypothetical scene. She was visiting me in hospital. There is a heart monitor beeping and tubes sticking out of me. I'm going to need a liver transplant or I might die. I look at her and say that the reason why I'm here, the reason why I might die, was because I decided to fight someone for my money or because they insulted me. I asked her if she thought that it would be worth it and if I would have made her proud. As you can see, bedtime stories in the club household have moved on a little since Peter and Br'er Rabbit now. Anyway, we then went through a list of other reasons why I could have ended up in that situation. And in the end, the only one she could feel proud about was if the situation I put myself in danger was, if it had been a failed attempt to protect myself or if I'd tried to protect someone else. We all have our moral compasses. Sometimes, looking at the worst case situation helps bring that into perspective. It is this attitude that should back up the defence strategy. You put up a barrier to those who you fear will harm you, and it should be enough to dissuade a fair number of people on a social level. Others might need this barrier to be reinforced by other non-physical tactics. This can range from simply stating you don't want trouble, or using a range of conflict management skills that might give a simply aggrieved aggressor time to cool down. 
There are a number of ways that this can be achieved. If this is an incident with a stranger, then playing the submissive party that makes the antagonist feel that he's already won is not the worst of ideas. Non-strangers, or at least people that you're likely to be seeing again, are a different matter. Such submissiveness might turn you into a regular victim of their bullying. Here you might try more sophisticated manipulation techniques such as humour or even Gavin de Becker's forced teaming. Mutual laughter is a natural and powerful stress reliever that humans are grateful for when it arrives. Turning enemies into friends isn't just pacifist idealism, it is the art of the professional diplomat. From Persians to Romans to Mongolians, many a conquering nation understood they had a better chance of sustainability if they could balance their aggression with diplomacy. Assertion is another method that can apply to both strangers and non-strangers effectively. Just as the submissive posturing is a method for hiding your preemptive strike if required, assertion must be used with the full intention that you are prepared to draw your metaphorical katana out in full. Likewise, understanding pre-attack ritual is a vital part of self-protection education. Seeing a person posture might give you an indication whether or not he's going to advance on you. Arms playing, head pecking, finger beckoning and gesticulating are classic aggressive display behaviours, but they do not always lead to an assault. Indeed, in many cases they are merely being used instead of actual fighting. Recognising this going on without the aggressor stepping forward into your space or touching your fence should indicate that a fight is avoidable. Jeff Thompson and his old school door supervising mentor John Awesome Anderson had a type of aggressive fence they would use that involved being preemptive but at the same time was not intended to knock their target out or be followed by a volley of hard strikes. This was a sharp shove that created a large gap and was immediately reinforced by posturing and aggressive commands which was designed to prompt the chemical cocktail or hormone release in the would-be attacker's body that would deter him from stepping forward. With the exception of violent sociopaths and psychopaths all of us have a bit of the metaphorical running rabbit in our DNA. The survival of any species relies on an individual not engaging in avoidable life-threatening risk. The real rabbit does not appear to have developed much in the way of a deterrent to its thousand enemies, or ill-ill, if we're using the language of Richard Adams. And although rabbits have little problem fighting if they have to, much of their survival evolution is down to their excellent methods of escape. Like humans, they're social animals and have many different means for signalling warnings to their fellow rabbits about predatory danger. Foot thumping, for example, is an effective signal for rabbits above or below ground of approaching danger. Having a network of burrows in their underground warrens with various entrances is also a useful escape tool. Likewise, the trained self-defence student should become proficient in both recruiting allies and spotting useful exit points in any given situation. There are many case studies where victims of murderous criminals have escaped with their lives thanks to the use of their wits. A combination of forced teaming techniques that will at very least stall their captor have brought them time to devise an exit strategy. When the moment has been right, they have made a break for it. In addition to teaching good verbal skills and understanding pre-attack behaviours, it's important that serious self-defence students are taught effective escaping. Teaching children has really highlighted this for me. Even the best trained child faces odds the average able-bodied adult does not have to contend with when it comes to fighting a violent adult. Therefore, tactical running, handling obstacles and hiding should be part of the foundation skills for any child self-defence course and this should further inform adults. Some adults have taken this on board in a serious manner. While there is no consensus opinion on its exact origin, the art of movement, parkour, was probably a development of military obstacle courses. Given its connection to these courses and the fact that one of its forerunners included combat as part of its training program, parkour might be considered to be a form of non-physical martial art. 
These days, we see its evolution to a form of physical expression, a form of improvised gymnastics, but at its root, you can see the art of escape. When I warm up my clients to engage in a combat sport, I use movements they will employ and should be part of their fundamentals when we train techniques, drills and spar. You will know by now that I'm not a fan of wasted warm-ups using movements that are not directly related to the activity that is to be practiced. Stand-up fighters work on their footwork and head movement, clinchers train their level shifting, shoots and sprawls, and ground fighters crawl, snake or shrimp their way along the mats. Self-defense students might use parts of these warm-ups to train muscle memory for combatives, but they should also train to run to real exit points at a split second notice, to run serpentine or in a zigzag, to jump scale and duck under obstacles, and to avoid one another in a mass rush. Another great attribute of the rabbit is his advanced hearing. We cannot hear as well as a rabbit or many other of our fellow mammals, but we can train to understand how auditory exclusion works. Therefore, it's important that various exercises are devised to increase pressure and to create the conditions where auditory exclusion will occur. Although shutting out noise might be a very important part of trying to focus in a dangerous situation, it can also work against us. We need to drill taking notice between exerting short and fast bursts of energy under pressure. The rabbit remains an icon of street smarts or country smarts, if you will, over brawn. Because he's the prince with a thousand enemies, he provides us and our children with a strong metaphor of survival against bullies. Small wonder that those who are oppressed, such as the Cherokee or the Western African slaves, would find solace in the stories of Br'er Rabbit. His stories and others, such as Watership Down, Peter Rabbit or even Bugs Bunny, might teach us that the world is a violent place, but we don't have to be the biggest, strongest and most fearsome fighter to survive and thrive. A monument to Br'er Rabbit can be seen in Etonton, Georgia, where Joel Chandler Harris first heard the stories of this rascally hero at the Turnwood Plantation. Under the statue of a smartly dressed Br'er Rabbit, there are words that are particular to this character, but also speak to us of the value of what the likes of experienced fighters such as Bokudan Tsukahara concluded in later years. The words begin with, Born and bred in the briar patch, a reference to a reverse psychology trick our hero plays on his main antagonist, Br'er Fox, when he convinces the villain to throw him into a briar patch and allow him to escape. The final line says it all for the art of fighting without fighting. He survives forever by his wit, his courage and his cunning. As I mentioned at the beginning of this show, my Vagabond Warriors workshops are booked in for the 28th of July and the 25th of August this year in the UK. Back in 2014, I made the hard decision of closing my Club Chimera Martial Arts School after 10 years. Since then, I've taught only private clients, self-contained courses and seminars. Over time, I've realised that my clients needed somewhere to work with other like-minded individuals, so I suggested the idea of regular workshops. This would address another problem. Knowing that for many of you in the UK, travelling to me for private lessons is just not efficient or economical. These workshops can serve not only as a chance for my private clients to set themselves goals and to meet up to train together, but we can also work with various other martial artists from all over the country. My hope is that we can keep this going and build a strong community of martial arts cross trainers. All workshops will be documented so you don't have to worry about taking notes. All workshops will be planned and yet be given plenty of room to naturally evolve in a progressive and informal atmosphere. Furthermore, I'll be offering support to all participants between workshops so that I can help them and they can feed back what they've taken from the experience and how it has worked in their own classes. We can also share information in online discussions and via videos. This will hopefully then feed into future workshops and we can continue improving on training methods. 
I think this is a really exciting time for martial artists where we can take full advantage of a time where more different disciplines are available and the technology allows for faster, more informative communication. Thanks again for everyone's support for the show. A huge thank you to Chris Jones, a martial artist who's always gone way beyond the call of duty in helping the martial arts community. Chris kindly allowed me a platform on his kickback podcast to promote Vagabond Warriors. The show is very professionally produced and Chris is quite the natural when it comes to podcasting, so be sure to check it out. You'll hear from him again in the next episode of this podcast. If you're enjoying these shows, please don't forget to rate and review them online via iTunes, Stitcher and wherever else you subscribe to podcasts. I'm very grateful to everyone who has done this for me. It's a big help to the show. Also, don't forget we're on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. Drop me a line, get some discussions going, let me know what you would like to hear more in the future. Next episode is technically a break from our animal-themed ways, and I wouldn't normally promote it on here, as it's more of a bonus edition. However, we're at the midway point in the year, and it's also such a special episode, I think it's worth you all knowing about. I'll be discussing martial arts movie cliches, so it's a rather fun topic. Not only will I be giving my own views on the tired tropes we could see less of in the genre that was once known as chop socky, I will also be opening the floor to several very special martial arts guests. Don't miss this one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>